0: For the rest of us who remain, if you're able, in honor and respect of God's word, would you please rise as we read our sermon scripture this morning from Isaiah 58. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily, And delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness, and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted, and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves, and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast you will seek your own pleasure, and oppress all your workers." Behold, you fast only to quarrel and fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread a sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom be as the noonday and your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then, you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride upon the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Peter.
1: Good morning. Good to be with you. Uh, For anyone who's visiting, my name is Nick Polico and I am the pastor of Trinity's campus down in Palos Heights, which is called Redemption Presbyterian Church, but is actually a part of this congregation. And once a month I get to, to preach up here. So it is good to be with you. Would you pray with me while we look to God's Word and ask for His help? Father, we thank you for this challenging but profoundly beautiful passage of Scripture and pray that as we spend just a few minutes here that you would expand our vision of, of your love for us, for our neighbors, and that you would do good work in our hearts to shape us and fashion us more into a people who, who embodies this experience of the love of Christ and extends that love to our neighbors is the very mission statement of our church articulates. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So this is a, you can think of this sermon as sort of a transitional sermon from your series about worship, because this is a passage about worship, to the series we're going to do about love and experiencing God's love and extending God's love through hospitality, because it's also a passage about those things as well. And it really, looking at this text in, in just a few minutes, it's going to be a 30,000-foot view. It's like flying out of O'Hare. You can see there's downtown, there's the lake, but not many of the beautiful details can come into focus. But we can still, I think, um, prepare for this fall through this passage. And this is, you know, as we read it, this is a text that is clearly about, about justice, And we live in a particular cultural moment where a lot of people are putting a lot of thought and discussion into issues of justice. And what I mean by justice, in particular this morning, and what we're going to consider is not punitive justice, you know, the justice that punishes those who are evil, but the sort of justice that is actually a synonym for love, the very same thing. The the just giving out of the love that we owe to those around us. Listen, just to help us, you know, sort of uh, have this in our minds, still by way of introduction, listen to Deuteronomy 10, 18, which talks about the Lord's justice and love. Talking about the Lord, Deuteronomy 10, 18 says, He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and loves the sojourner that is the immigrant or the refugee, giving him food and clothing. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. That means that the Lord's execution of justice and his demonstration of love in this verse are the same thing. They're synonyms. So that's what we're talking about when we're talking about justice from this passage. We're talking about love. And as we move into this series in the fall where we talk about experiencing God's love and moving out into the world in, in justice and in hospitality, it's important that we address, and this is really the, the one thing I want to address this morning, the fact that there are many of our neighbors and perhaps some of us in this room who have unfortunately experienced significant injustice in church contexts. And therefore they are just done or tempted to be done. With, with anything related to church whatsoever. A well-known Christian leader put on Twitter this past week, Dear non-Christians, please don't give up on Jesus because of the horrible things that many have done in His name. And the comments that followed ranged from thank you for saying this to what, should we give the church another 200 years of horrendous behavior? before deciding whether or not to give up on it? And then that person went on to say, actually, I still really want to believe, but I just don't know if I can anymore. So, what we're doing this morning is this, very specifically. We're asking ourselves, as we, we go into the season where we're talking about moving outward more than we have so far. Taking what, what I think, what Pastor Jeff thinks, uh, and I'm sure Pastor Brent thinks, is really a, a wonderful community of love here at this congregation and try to do more to, to embrace our neighbors around us with that love. How do we help people, and perhaps even each other, who are agonizing over the fact that, well, the church is meant to be this community of love, but I haven't, I haven't experienced it to be that. So the first, the first way this passage encourages us to respond is by acknowledging that hypocritical religion is a thing. That's how we talk nowadays, right? That's a thing, that's not a thing. Acknowledging hypocritical religion, it's a thing. Cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet, says the Lord. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. The trouble was not that these people had by all appearances at this point, Forsaken the Lord because we read in verse 2, God says, they seek Me daily and delight to know My ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness. And it becomes clear a few verses later that they're fasting. So that means that daily they're seeking God in His Word and in prayer. Probably in the liturgical practices, the sacrifices that they were meant to, to, to practice as a means of drawing near to God. They looked really pious. Religion mattered to them. And they probably practiced a fairly conservative version of it. And yet the Lord says, they just seek, they just seem to delight to know my ways. When in fact they forsake the judgment of, they forsake the judgment of their God. And the experience of those who are doing this, it's one of of spiritual futility. They're saying, well, why have we fasted? You have not seen it. There's some sort of sense that their connection to God is not what it should be. And the Lord says, it's because on the day of your fast, you do your own pleasure. You oppress your workers and you quarrel, you hit with a wicked fist. When you're fasting, he's saying to his people, you might be giving up food, but you're not giving up oppression. You're oppressing your workers, which, which could mean subjecting them to unjust conditions. It could mean withholding wages. And you're settling disputes violently. I, uh, Jennifer and I, my wife and I, we used to live in St. Louis, and there was a day when one of the deacons from our church there asked if I could come help a uh, single woman whose home had been flooded. Her house was at the bottom of a hill and had a creek behind it, and we'd had a major St. Louis rainstorm, and she'd had like two feet of water in her house. And so everything, unfortunately, the drywall, the carpet, she just had to rent a dumpster and just throw out almost all of her stuff. And in the garage where the drywall had come off, um, it exposed that her garage and her home were infested with termites. And before this flood had come, there had been no indication whatsoever that the building was unsound or that there was this infestation of this destructive pest, but the flood came, pulled some of the drywall away and showed it might have looked good on the outside, but on the inside it is rotting. And the Lord says that is what hypocritical religion is like. Even if a person's life is filled with Bible studies and prayer and giving and church attendance, if there is no actual embodiment of life with God that works itself out in love toward others, it's, it's like a heart that is filled with termites. And we're going to encounter people who have experienced religion this way and who understandably will say, why would I want to go anywhere near that? You wouldn't buy a house that you knew was infested with termites. Why would I buy into this if this has been my experience? And so, The first sort of challenging invitation we have is to consider where we withhold justice from others. Even at a congregation where I think there are people who actually love God and it's not all hypocrisy, if if oppression and injustice are the same thing as the withholding of love, then that means that we don't only commit injustice when we are actually acting out in violence or illegally oppressing people, but anywhere in our life where we are withholding the love that we owe to the people around us. We're committing injustice. And God's Word comes to us sort of like a flood peeling away the drywall to help us to see where do we need treatment because pests have begun to bore. Where in your life, when you uh, get into a conflict, do you turn to passive aggressiveness, to withhold love, instead of steering in to try to resolve the conflict? Where do you ignore those who are around you, who you really are in a position, perhaps, to reach out to in kindness, and the reason you haven't is just (laughs) because you have better things to do? Where do we withhold justice? And when we ask the question that way, we recognize that every single one of us, every single one of us, has and does withhold justice. And that should give us a profound posture of humility as we reach out toward others with the message of of the Gospel. So, Acknowledge that hypocritical religion is a thing. That's the first thing we can do to help those or to encourage ourselves if we're struggling with this reality. Acknowledge that it's a thing. Secondly, though, in light of the temptation to just be done and to not even consider God or consider Christ, we have to recognize that actual justice without God is not a thing. Hypocritical religion is a thing, but actual justice without God is not a thing. The fundamental conviction of this passage is that there is a righteous and good and loving God who stands above the just and the unjust, who stands above oppressor and those who are oppressed, and who who judges justly. And that without Him the very categories of justice don't actually even make any sense. Now, I've got to unpack this a little bit. I, I, am, I am not saying that a non-Christian, an unbeliever, a person who considers himself a secular person, cannot embody a relative human um, uh, you know, sense of justice and goodness or or anything like that. I am not saying that a person who's not a believer cannot be in any way ethical. In fact, I know plenty of non-Christians who are a lot easier to be around than a lot of Christians I've known. And I know a lot of non-Christians of whom I can look at aspects of their life and say, quite honestly, I should be more like that (laughs) in that area. This person is doing better than me (laughs) there. But what I am saying is that when we cry out for justice, and when we cry out against injustice among God's people, we are using categories that only make sense if there is a God who, who is the absolute measure and source of justice and love. Let me, I really want to spend some time here, and it's not just because I want to play philosophical games, It's because I really want to help us when we wrestle and wonder, is God really there when we, you know, go read a book about church history. It's not all pretty. I actually think the church has been an instrument for a great deal of good over the centuries, but it certainly has not only been that. And it's legitimate to wonder, is God even among us? I mean, us in the the macro sense. And it's a legitimate question for our neighbors to ask, and so that's why I want to land here, but... I want to tell you about a a podcast I was listening to recently. Um, There is a growing amount of uh, podcasts by people who refer to themselves as ex-evangelicals, people who grew up in a sort of evangelical circle, had uh, at least what they report to be very unpleasant experiences, and now they're kind of banding together as a movement. And I was listening to a discussion between two people, a man and a woman, and they were wrestling with the question of now that we have left where do we get our sense of right and wrong and meaning from and what they both concluded is that we just assign it we assign meaning we decide what is meaningful and how and and we're okay with living that way and they went on to talk about how that's actually what everybody does they described their, the people in their evangelical past as doing the same thing, just sort of assigning meaning, deciding that, as they looked around at the world, uh, deciding to interpret the world a certain way and, and just assigning meaning. But here's where they showed the, the chink in their armor. They said, but some, and sometimes evangelicals can do that for good, and sometimes they do it for bad. And the other person said, yes, they can. Now, on the one hand, I actually agree with them. (laughs) If you look at just the evangelical world broadly, I think evangelicals, uh, sort of as a demographic, have dreamed up a lot of meaning, uh, which is assigned to the world, which is not actually very good. But do you understand what they did? They said, we have our meaning that we assign, they have their meaning that they're assigning, and sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad, and by doing so, they're actually assuming there is some sort of standard above us both that judges whether or not the meanings we create for ourselves and the ethics we create for ourselves are good and bad. Because if, it's, if there is no inherent meaning, listen, it's okay if this seems a little fuzzy, but what they are saying, if, if there is no inherent meaning the, meaning, the world is just an accidental, meaningless place, that is not actually infused with right and wrong, with beautiful and ugly, with just and unjust. And so it's just up for human beings to to us to arbitrarily decide what we value and what we don't. Then there's no actual way for one group to say to another group, what you value is wrong, and I have a higher authority to whom I can appeal. And if that's fuzzy, it's okay. Maybe talk about it with somebody else who's, who doesn't think it's fuzzy. Uh, I think it probably could have been explained better than I just did. I'm, I'm sort of doing my best. But what I'm getting at is we actually know God is there. This is what I'm getting at. When you talk to a person who's been burned by Christians or burned by religion, and they're angry, maybe they don't even believe there's a God, They're really angry at this God that they think they don't believe in. And they're appealing actually to that God's standards in order to express their outrage at the church. And, you know, it's not just that, you know, we we should be playing philosophical games with people to try to defeat them in a debate. That's not the point. The point is to help people to understand if you have actually experienced injustice, it's not just that you experienced something hurtful or unpleasant. It really was unjust. And God himself actually hears the cries of the oppressed. Your very cry for justice is an acknowledgement that you know he's there. But, like every single one of us, you, I, we, we've all contributed to the injustice of the world by withholding at least some of the love that we owe to others and withholding the love we owe to God. Now, I want to just kind of take a break for a second here. I've just sort of argued that the fact that every single human being has this inherent longing for justice you know, demonstrates that we know there's a God who is the ultimate source and measure of justice. But we, we have more than that. Because you know, if we have a God who is just, we still rightly, I, I think rightly, ask the question, why does he allow injustice? And Scripture doesn't give us all of the answers to that, but this very passage in Isaiah 58 Flows out of this longer section of Isaiah, which includes Isaiah 53, which talks about this suffering servant who, as the story of Scripture unfolds, turns out to be the Lord Himself in the person of Jesus. And we read in, in Isaiah 53, He was oppressed and He was afflicted. He Himself was oppressed. Why was He oppressed? Stricken for the transgression of My people. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. This is the only place, this is the only story in this book where we are given a story of the world that makes sense of what we know to be true. That we live in a world that is not meaningless where we just value certain things and want to avoid suffering, but we, we live in a world where there is actually a real standard of justice and love. We live in a moral universe, and we long for God to not be aloof and detached from it. And we have here a story where God Himself actually came and tasted oppression so that we could be forgiven. For our oppression, because the guilt and the shame of it has been removed, put upon the shoulders of Christ, has then triumphed over our own oppression and our own death in his resurrection. So that when we stand before him, we can stand blameless and go to our judgment with confidence because our oppressiveness has been forgiven. There's a, you know, a really famous story in, in John 6 where Jesus you know, feeds thousands of people with bread. And so all these people will want to follow him. And then Jesus starts to say these really confounding and offensive things to the crowds that want to follow him about their spiritual helplessness. And then he starts saying all this weird stuff about having to eat his flesh and blood and just oogie-sounding stuff till only his little tiny central pack of disciples are left. And he says to them, are you going to leave too? And Peter says, Lord, where where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. So what I'm saying here is that, and what I think this passage is saying, is that when we encounter neighbors, or when we perhaps are tempted to ourselves to be people who turn our back on the church, on God, on Christ, Because of negative experiences, we have to ask and help people to gently ask, where else are you going to go? Where else are you even going to go to make sense of your cry for justice? And then finally, and, and more briefly, how do we ourselves experience transformation so that we can become increasingly just and loving people? You know, there's so much that could be said from this passage about the nature of pursuing justice, and we hopefully will unpack some of those things this fall. But how do we become people whose hearts are just more naturally inclined to justice and to love? And we're told that it's through finding rest. That being a people of justice comes through being people of rest. That's what all these last verses about the Sabbath A lot of questions maybe arise about the Sabbath and the New Testament church and people start thinking, what can I do and can't do on Sunday? And that can be a fitting conversation, but the the principle that we have time for right now is that God is telling his people, when you delight in finding your rest in me, that is when you will become the sort of people that I am calling you to become. The Sabbath day was created for humankind and then given in particular to the people of Israel as a means of weekly experiencing a deep rest, not just of body, but of soul. Of being able to say, I can trust so much in God's love for me that I can put down my doing and my productivity, that I can see striving and grasping, and I can just rest and delight in being a person loved by God. That is why Jesus describes salvation as as coming to him for rest. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. You know, you can't become a person who is concerned with the welfare of others when you you don't have a sense of security and an ability to rest yourself. There's a, a passage in the book of James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, where there's an echo of Isaiah 58, verse 4. Isaiah 58, 4, Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight. Why? Why do we quarrel and fight? James 4 says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Your soul is not at rest. You don't have a deep sense of God being your provision and loving you and caring for you and giving you everything that you need and more, including himself. And so you're grasping and you're fighting like my little children when they knock each other's blocks over. Their fighting is ruined, or, 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 uh, uh, rooted in, in anxiety. And so, just to be really concrete here, kind of in closing, um, I want to share with you an encouragement that I used to get. When I, when I was in seminary, at Covenant Seminary in St. Louis, um, I was part of a covenant group, a group of students that met weekly to you know, share in depth and to pray. And we had two different staff members who met with us. One of them... Uh, is now pastoring a church in California. His name's Brad Anderson. I'm sure Ted knows him. Um, maybe the rest of the Powers clan as well. Um, and he, would, he, would, he had this little line he would say to us all the time when he was trying to help us to examine our own hearts and sort of diagnose the places where we needed to seek rest from God. He would say, follow the noise and follow the pain. What he meant was, you know, when you're sitting by yourself, sort of trying to consider the state of your own heart, where is the noise? You know, the the voices either of condemnation or of regret, of shame, of longing, of anger, of doubt, you know, the noise, the static, you know, it's sort of like I have tinnitus a little bit. Mm, there's just always a ring there. Too much rock and roll when I was a teenager and then too many toddlers shrieking into my ear when I had to wrangle them and they're angry. So if, if I lay in total silence, there's just always this ring. What is the constant ring? Essentially, he would say. And his encouragement would be think of that noise, think of that pain, as as being something that can sort of, this is sort of how I thought of it, function like a trail that you follow back into the arms of the Lord so that you're seeking rest from these things in Him and not elsewhere. Pay attention to the noise and to the pain and recognize these are places where I have not yet come as fully as I can to the Lord in order that he might give me rest from this noise and from this pain. Now, for some people that might sound extremely helpful, that might sound uh, just sort of ethereal, but what, what I'm getting at is this. We're, you know, we're about to move into the season where we're trying to Develop greater hospitality, greater embrace of the world around us with the message of the gospel of Jesus and a life, a congregational life that backs it up. And what we've said is three things, really. We're going to encounter people, and they might even be ourselves, for whom it's important to acknowledge that hypocritical religion is a thing. And that if, if they've been hurt by it, that hurt matters and is not to simply be shrugged off with platitudes or truisms. But that justice without God is not a thing. And that if they want healing and if we want healing from any injustice or oppression we've experienced, the place to find it is in the arms of the Savior who was oppressed on our behalf. And that For we, ourselves, to become people who more fully embody an ability to move out toward each other, towards our neighbors, in in love and in justice, to be as concerned for the well-being and the care of of others as we are for ourselves, the way to do that is to find rest. And, And we all have places in our hearts where we are not resting in Christ as fully as we can. And so, as we move into this fall, my appeal to myself and to you, and especially to me as a pastor, is kind of new here, is to not merely get caught up with strategizing, planning, organizing, designing ministry, as much as we need to do those things. You know, a body needs a skeleton. But a body needs warm flesh and blood as well. And we need to focus on the warming of our hearts by finding rest more fully in our Savior, to transform ourselves into people who live up more and more to this mission statement of, of receiving and extending the love of Christ in our world. Let's go to our time of confession. And you know, one of the marvelous things about our Lord is that He, he loves receiving sinful, broken people who have committed injustice and oppression when, when they come to him and say, I need your mercy. And when we have sought rest elsewhere and say, I've sought rest elsewhere in other arms and now I want to come back to you, his arms are wide open, they're not crossed. So let's take a moment to pray about perhaps times when in light of the noise and the pain we've sought rest elsewhere. and To confess whatever the Holy Spirit might lay on your heart. And then I will, I will pray to close that time of confession together after you've had a few moments. You are the one who hears the cry of the oppressed and who even hears the cry of the oppressors when the oppressor turns to you in repentance. Your Son Jesus came into the world and said, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Forgive us, Lord, for sometimes declining that invitation. But we return now Thanking you for your your love and your grace and your generosity towards us through Jesus Christ. Amen. Brothers and sisters, hear this good news from Psalm 103 verses 13 and 14. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion for those who fear him. And what this means, believers in Jesus Christ, is that in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the steadfast love of God is fully known, and in Christ your sins are forgiven. Thanks be to God.